You are listening to Sonic Symbolism, where Björk explores her emotional landscapes, the textures and timbers of her albums, with her friends Ausmundur Jonsson and me, Odnir. This is episode 8. Vulnikura. For me, when I started Vulnikura, it was probably one of the most clear character image-wise because it was very universal. A heartbroken woman, which is like goes back to the Greek tragedies and it's something we all know. And in a way, it was the role I hated to play. And so I was like, wow, am I actually going to be this cliché? You know, that was the beginning, the problem I had. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm actually doing a Heartbreak album. The words that describe Vulnikura are Confessional Victimhood Liter songs Moss Tundra Greek Tragedy Update Maybe he will come Man, woman, conflict, chamber, orchestra. Lavender Wax, the ritual of mourning. Recovery narrative. I will not forget this, not get. Will you not regret having love? Let go. Heartbreak, shock. Neon yellow lava. We are the 
Björk's eighth album, Bulnikura, which roughly means cure for wounds, was written after the end of an important relationship. She started making a musical chronicle of her feelings, and the album then turned out to be a journal of her healing process, from victimhood to a vibrant desire to survive, exploring vulnerability, resilience and passion, as a mother amongst older and future generations. When I wrote it, I think I was just writing the songs really, really quickly. And before I knew it, I had a lot of songs. And then I remember a moment after a year or two writing them, I would sit down and listen to them all in one go. And that moment, I was like, oh, I was actually really surprised. I was like, oh my God, we have a heartbreak album here. <laughs> And it's really obvious. And I remember, okay, I have two choices to do this. I have a choice to pretend that this is not the case or just really go melodramatic and just do what the material wants me to do. And it was a tough choice. And I remember for like a few months, I couldn't make up my mind which way I should go. And then in the end, I decided, okay, I'm gonna let the material get what it deserves and at least try to be the best producer and arranger that I can for this material. And maybe I will suffer as a person for that because it's more painful for me and my family. Of course, I was thinking about a lot. I didn't want anyone to get unnecessarily hurt. But I think I was writing in a sort of a language that was hopefully graceful to protect everyone. I don't want this podcast be full of me feeling sorry for myself, but I hopefully this is just helpful for people who go through the same thing and they are listening. I really, really thought for two years that I would not survive. I really, really thought that I would be in excruciating pain for 300 years. I know there's no logic to that, but that's how I felt. And doing every single song was like a major rescue event on myself. 
and I would feel rescued for about two days afterwards. And then it was back to the bottom, you know, and I had to like, I had to start again with emotional scaffolding and just get myself out of this canyon. And I would, you know, build with blood, sweat and tears and get myself out there and it would last for two days and then back. Maybe not always as back down, you know, as far down, but eventually it's like, sorry, the cliche is true, like time is the, is the real healer, you know. When I was in that state and I heard people say that or, or read that or saw it in a film, I was just crying. I was like, thank you. It was just important to know that it's not something that just lasts forever. Eventually, you get out of it, you know? We have in front of us an image of the Wulnikur album cover and Björk explains its visual symbolism to me, beginning with the color palette. For me, it was definitely neon yellow and white. That was the color I was wearing for the whole three year. And it's basically danger or a sense of emergency, like those tropo lights in my life, like nonstop. And I wasn't sleeping and, and it was like on all these kind of every level of the word. And then the black latex was the, the rejection. Like it felt like the blood in my veins would get like lead. It would be like a paralyzing effect on my body. You know, I would just get like lethargic from the rejection. The album's fourth track, Black Lake, has a unique structure. The verses are separated by extended instrumental drones that seem to freeze in time. Yes, I think it was inspired by how I was feeling. My body was just super, super, super heavy. And then one verse would come, and then I would just be paralyzed. Like I couldn't even move from grief. Into the fabric of war, And then you say something, you confess to a friend, and it makes you feel better for 30 seconds <laughs> while you are saying it, and then you're just back to the pain, you know. It is a confessional song. It is having your best friend there and you are trying to get some relief from your pain by just sharing what you have gone through, which I guess at the end of the day is a very human condition that we all go through some point in our lives. You feel 
for me, Black Lake, even though the lyrics are very sad and my voice is very sad, the string arrangement is almost all the beautiful things that were in the relationship. So the refinement and the sort of romantic feeling I was trying to express in the strings in Black Lake are kind of me trying to express the beauty and what was refined about the 13-year relationship before. If you could somehow scarp that, you know. I guess there is a contrast in a way in Black Lake in the fact that the melody is very dead and very sad, saying very sad things. But then the string arrangement is kind of what the voice is mourning. So it is quite romantic in a way. Let's go to the, the visual symbolism. There's the healing process, which is the lilac candle wax. And that is not only on the album cover, but in all the videos and photo shoots I did. Because I think the healing process was when you have a wound and the first layer kind of looks like candle wax. And it sort of has the same kind of almost biological texture to it, that it's almost like, it's visceral, it's, it's about emergency, you know, the fact you have potentially lethal emotional wounds, but you also have the healing material, and which is almost like balms or not candle wax, but you have these kind of like really, really thick creams that you put on wounds. And they have, have this kind of color of lilac or sort of pink. So it, it sort of had that, and it's almost like sexual, but it's not... The pain is erotic in the sense that it it goes to the the core of you because you are so defenseless. I wake you up in the middle of the night to express my love for you. Stroke your skin and feel you. Naked I can feel all of you at the same moment. We kept on discussing the visual symbolism behind the Wollenkura album cover. She tells me that the wound in her chest has a double meaning. 
And then, of course, was the very dangerous cliche, but the wound in the chest. I was actually researching and we actually have a pile of, you know, from all over the world and different times, this kind of idea of the heart is a wound. And then a friend of mine who is Jewish said that actually you have to change it from being a wound. So it's basically imploding destruction going inwards to a gate, exploding energy going outwards. And that's when you the healing starts that you think of this area as, as a gate where things are coming in and out and you don't let everybody in. You choose, okay, I love you, I don't love you. So this was kind of the song, The Gate, the first song on Utopia was almost the bridge song or the last song on this album. The history of touches Every single archive Compressed into a second All with us here as I wake you Also the uh, halo, which is around my head. If you read in uh, Jungian archetypal books, which actually I have not done as much as I pretend I do, when you become the victim archetype and you feel sorry for yourself on a massive scale, which was really difficult for me because I was so ashamed of it. And then when you fall on your knees and you allow yourself to be the victim, you get almost like a saintly glow, you know. But it's a really delicate balance because if you are stuck then in the victim energy, the glow goes. It becomes like a, just like self-indulgence or a slimy feeling, you know. So what is very important too is, okay, I will allow myself to be a victim and follow my knees, but I'm gonna heal. And I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to like traverse and go beyond it. Or at least try to do it. This halo is like a crown, but it's like a dantillion. Like at the last stage of the dantillion, it gets like the gray mm -hmm. little, and then you just have to blow one. Yeah. Those are the seeds of the dantillion, and dantillion is of course a very medicinal herb. So I see it also like a yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Dantillion halo, or what what you call it, halo, or the yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. I think also it matches because it's a very momentary. You have to then move quickly to the next stage, not 
The danger is getting stuck there in self-pity. But also the word dandelion is, comes from the etymologically uh, the teeth of the lion. Oh, beautiful. Which is also like, you are a lioness also, like there is like, I mean, this image does not refer to the goddess of justice. It's more like the hands are out in like asking, like asking what next and how come and what happened. But in the album though, you go through the stage where you like, you are referring to justice in anger, you know, a little bit, yeah. After our love ended, your arms don't carry me without love. I feel the abyss, understand your fear of death. I want to ask you about Arka, the music partner you brought on board here, who co-produced many of the album's tracks. What did Arka mean to your creativity at the time? Yeah, I think it was a very unusual album for me because I wrote all the songs really quickly and then I arranged them all for strings and recorded that. And then I had started to do all the beats to the songs in Mullikura and what I do, similar to the album I'm doing now, is I make the pattern of the beat mm-hmm. and I kind of put placement beats in the songs, but not with the final sounds, especially because my songs structurally be- are becoming more and more irregular. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a lot of time and work that goes into the sort of skeleton of the beats before you do the sound design. And I had done some of that work, and then Arka contacted me, mm-hmm. wanted to work with me, and it was like perfect timing. It couldn't have been more perfect timing in my life, and it was a very, very emotional thing, because I, of course, I had lost a partner in my life and, and was very, very wounded, and then I met someone who was just an incredible musical partner, but so talented on on every level, not just beat or production, but also singing or like the whole range of things that we could have a conversation about. She added like a whole another dimension to it and it was such an... um, contradiction in it maybe because the songs were so sad and it was like I was like crying every single time I had to listen to them <laughs> starting to work in the studio and I couldn't could hardly listen to them and then it was so fun working with Arka and I think it was somehow like a reaction both of us had you know it's like what can you do when you have the most tragic material on earth and you just tell 5,000 jokes and jump around and become a bit crazy and humor and playfulness and which of course is something that Arka has so much of. But then of course there were um, a lot of mirroring, interesting mirroring. Arka's parents had separated when she was the same age as my daughter and so it was like that million mirrors inside. It really felt like it was just meant to be, you know, because it for her it was so easy to, to do it. It was like drinking water, you know. So it became both 
one of the hardest albums for me to make and the easiest. <laughs> At the same time, so it, it was a lot of contradiction inside this album. <laughs> Björk has described the song Atom Dance as a reference to atoms rotating and a celebration of an element of Sufi or Vikivaki, Icelandic cyclical round dances. This track also features one of Björk's previous collaborators, Anoni. Yeah, I wanted to write a song about love in the most kind of universal way, not in a personal way, like a ode to love mm -hmm. and I wanted to find the common thread in like Sufi and Wikiwaki and so I wrote this song in like 5-4 five, five so it's cyclical that it could turn in round and round and round kind of how some of the Sufi early dervishes when they're turning in circles the sort of trance you get into actually the one song on Wulnukura which I spent most time in and actually the oldest song on Wulnukura I wrote it it almost made it to biophilia so it was when I was thinking about different rhythms and cyclical patterns and math and then it didn't make it to biophilia because basically it took me like three years to write this song <laughs> not constantly but I kept going back to it and improving it and improving it I wrote the lyric with Atni Eir and Anoni was singing it. I asked her to sing it with me. Atoms rotating is something yeah. that refers to 
little bit. But I felt it could live on Wulnikura because it could be like once you have healed and you're out of the pain, the healing process, the destination of the celebration of love could be a, a good one. So it, maybe it's a song that could live in both places. Yeah. And also I tried to arrange atom dance for organ and gamelist. Okay. And it sort of didn't work. It needed more energy. So it was actually perfect to put strings on it. Because mm. then you got energy. Because it's a very strange song. It's kind of slow, but it's, it needs to be slow and fast at the same time. Yeah, I would like to turn the conversation to family. Mm -hmm. uh, the arrangement, I think, is very interesting, where the voice is floating around within the beats and the strings are abstract elements. And these elements are set here against clear beauty. This arrangement, how did you work that out? Yeah, I, I remember actually when I wrote Family, I literally was sitting at this table and just went walking there and it just came out in like one go, like uh, almost like a conversation. The string arrangement, it was atonal and very, like with a really, really slow vibrato and out of tune. And so it had this kind of like sort of death, morbid feeling, like it, it's a funeral. And if I imagine the shape of the song, it is almost like a graveyard. And I'm trying to build a structure, which is the gravestone of our family. And I'm just wanting it as a form. And I'm trying to make it inside the song.
using 15 strings. Can you explain what you were looking for there? 15 string is maybe not very common. Yeah, I think when I did homogenic, it was like a double quartet. So in a way, it was just quartet with a megaphone. <laughs> but this was very different matter and I wanted to be very muddy. So I had an unusual combination, which I've not seen since, which was five violins, five violas and five cellos. All the melodies are not really moving much. They are almost lying on the floor, mm -hmm. you know, just very, like, sad. So I wanted the strings just to be like, I just imagined like Iceland in winter, in the lava, and no plants and not much light and not much decoration and mm. just really raw and uh, nothing moving fast or, or no... Um, somersaults or gymnastics. Mm -hmm. Basically, I had a nervous breakdown and every minute I, I was just like, I'm not going to survive the next minute. It was just like one minute at a time. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to describe this afterwards. But I think it's a similar experience that people feel, you know, if they've lost someone, a loved one who have died or... That's something I discovered that it was a very typical reaction to grief, you know. And I actually ended up getting a my friend was lending me a self-help book that was very small and banal. And I literally, it says the first chapter you feel like this, the second chapter you feel like this, you're on month three, and then you're on month four, and it was literally like, oh my God, I finished three, I'm in four, and then you have a relapse, you go back to three. And it's actually crazy how accurate it is, you know, it's absolutely insane. So that's also another reason why I decided to actually release the songs in the same order they were written. Okay. Because that was a really big decision. I was like, oh my God, that feels very melodramatic and like a soap opera. But I was like, I owe it to the songs. Mm -hmm. Because if you put the songs themselves, some of them are not maybe that good or whatever, but if you put song number three in place number three, it becomes three times more powerful in the context. So I think because the song were written very fast and some of the lyrics I'm actually quite embarrassed about, they were just like, almost like a phone call, like very desperate. You can sort of justify this kind of language if you do it in the right chronological order. 
And at least the structure, I was hoping, praying that the structure would rescue me from banal. <laughs> Being as banal as the book. That did help me very much, so, <laughs> you know. Yeah, how is this vulnerability? How did you live it somehow? Not as something that you just uh, comes to you once in a while or you know about in yourself, but something like it defines your being really for a, for a whole period. I think afterwards I have a lot more sympathy to others. And I literally was on airplanes or walking downtown and looking at everyone in the eye. I was like, wow, I understand the pain you are going through and the pain you are going through and the pain you are going through the pain you are going through. And it sort of heightened my my empathy. I'm not saying it lasted, but I, I do my best. There are things that everybody has happened to them, which is out of their control. You know, it just comes like a comet from the sky. And yeah, and has devastating effects. I mean, obviously I was lucky because nobody died and, you know, nothing of the worldly terrible things happened to me. It was more an emotional and uh, spiritual catastrophe. But I think because I'm a singer-songwriter, you know, that's my medium, that then it was a huge event in my life. was something that I felt the world I was living in wanted me to make for 20 years. And I never understood this because that's not me. That's not my life at all. And I think it wasn't until I was older when I understand more the sort of psychology and the threat that strong women have to the patriarchy in a lot of patriarchal countries. It's not in Iceland, I think, actually. That's another story, but maybe this is why I have resisted this so much. But in a lot of patriarchal countries, men don't have feelings and women are over-emotional. And then when you have films or operas or, or stories where you have a strong female character, like they sing the most wonderful thing ever and then they die. <laughs> it's like there are more roles that we can play than the sort of edit PF Maria Callas archetype, you know, be a victim and then self-destruct and everybody cries. I saw a documentary on Maria Callas and I was like furious. She had the most perfect life and the perfect career and she did the last concert and everything perfect. But somehow the people who made the documentary had to frame it as that she was a victim. Mm -hmm. She was not a victim. And they made the whole thing just because she didn't get Onassis or her whole life's work was she was a victim. Okay. And it's like, what? I mean, you, you have like, I don't know, Picasso or whatever, and he had like 
20 female troubles. And, and never is he framed like, oh, and he was a victim. You know, it's like, no. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody has love problems, you know, and it's not. I think it's just the patriarchy's way to just, if somebody gets too strong, just to write them off. Kind of like, oh, now you can have a lot of feelings, emotion, take up a lot of space, but then in the end, you have to explode and self-destruct and then leave the exit the stage right. Bye, see you later, smoke. story is, okay, it's good to have feelings, but in the end, it is bad for you, so it, you should not do it. You should just be cold. And look what happens to people who are emotional. <laughs> they just self-destruct, you know. And for me, this is a very boring story, you know, that is projected on a lot of women. And I think it has been projected on a lot of singers through the years, much, much more than male musicians. And that's maybe one of the reasons why I wanted each album of mine to tell a different story. So it was all the different characters and all but a lot of hope. And I feel I've lived a blessed life and I'm definitely not a victim. And I found talking to women all around the planet it was surprising to me how much effect this album had on my listeners, especially women who had experienced similar things and men too, that what was most important was that the healing process. That, okay, you can go to this location, but you cannot just be stuck there for 10 albums. You have to grow and move out of it and go to a new place. So the Wollenkura tour was quite different from her previous tours. I wanted to do something really respectful and honorable to my family or try to do it without cutting the edge off. And somehow I did concerts with no visuals. We did Carnegie Hall and those kind of places who were uh, designed for a small ensemble. There was like... 15 string players and a beat, Arka and myself. And I, the reason why I had no visual was because I didn't want it to take away from the music. It was all just about the music, almost like a Greek tragedy. So it was more, instead of being changing the science museum into a experimental theater of biophilia, this was, okay, let's go actually to buildings who were made for music. So 
let's go back to the music world and just be a singer, you know, go on stage and just sing and sing and sing my heart out. Almost like a opera character or something. Out of all my albums, that album is closest to what originally opera was supposed to be in Italy. I've been in some of these old concert rooms in the middle of Italy and they were actually quite small and very tall. So there were a lot of balconies. So you almost had the singer in the middle and every listener were close. So you, it's kind of like um, a speaker or an extension of the singer's body and telling this kind of tragic story, you know, and wanting everybody to cry with you, you know. And Vulkura is that, you know. Björk has described this album as being more traditional in terms of songwriting, especially after its deeply conceptual predecessor, Biophilia. But as with Biophilia, Vulnikura was not just a traditional album. Björk also made a series of immersive and innovative music videos, which then became the virtual reality exhibition Björk Digital. In the VR visual album, Björk could indulge in the operatic element of this narrative and give the protagonist a more 21st century ending, a transformation. I started doing VR and what I found out very quickly was that it was almost like an opera, but an intimate private opera one-on-one, -on -one, which is a contradiction because usually you associate opera with thousand people, you know, but it's almost like opera for one <laughs> because it's like you're telling your best friend your terrible heartbreak story. We actually were really lucky because we first did it in Australia. It was a festival. We were like, okay, either this works or it doesn't work. And there was actually over a whole month, we had the warehouse with the VR of the first songs and everybody were crying their hearts out. They were like with the goggles, crying and crying and crying and crying and crying. So it was almost like therapeutic. And what we learned through the songs was that sort of metaphysical things were really powerful. So actually the cover that I have here in front of me when I'm almost in a yoga move called The Bridge, Bending Back. And then in the song Family, I take a needle and a thread and I sew together the wound. And then I stand up and walk off. That was the moment that everybody started crying so much. And we sort of understood that it was something universal. And you can program it so you, you are the hands movements. So you take the needle and you 
hear the song and then you sow your wounds and then you stand up and walk away. You exit the victim role, at least for five seconds. But this Vulnikora Björk reborn? Yes, I think so. I think especially towards the end of it. I mean, of course, it depends what moment you pick, you know. Like when I was singing the words, maybe not so much. But then, of course, there is the production and the arrangement, and then it's the touring of it. And mm -hmm. so you look at the whole picture three years. It was very cathartic and very therapeutic, actually even though I was not planning it like this as a selfish therapy session for myself. But it happened to be that you had to go through it every single time when you sing it. So, yes, I would say in that sense, I got reborn. And, and also it was, out of all the albums I've done, probably the most reaction I've ever gotten. That was a very curious, people were so emotional about this album and so, they really, really reacted to that one. So that was very rewarding. Something you can never plan, of course. So in that way, it was a rebirth because they were reacting to the new one that I was. Sonic Symbolism is a co-production of MailChimp Presents, Talkhouse and Björk, and was made by Björk, Odnier, Ausmetter Jonsson, Anna Geda, Ian Wheeler, Julie Douglas and Christian Kuhns. It was produced by Christian Kuhns and edited by Christian Kuhns and Anna Geda. Special thanks to Derek Burkett, Catherine Werner Bentley, Sack McNees, Ivar Kjartansson, Bergur Thorisson og Duna Steinun Thorgeisdóttir. Music up piece by courtesy of One Little Independent Records. <laughs>